This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Jerry, there is no snow, there is no ice that can keep the wheelhouse grounded. It is episode 40. We are back inside T-Mobile Park at the Legends Room. How was the snow day for you? Did you come into the office? Did you fight the snow and come in? Well, I fought the ice. I had a, I had a medical appointment down here yesterday morning. So I, I was out really before the sun came up. The roads were on the treacherous side, I, I will say. And it was, I realized at that point it was my first snow day since maybe 2005. I've uh, been living in generally sunny or dry places since then. So... I, I, I braved the roads to come down, and then as soon as I saw how bad the roads were, I shuffled back home as soon as I could. Is the uh, workday at home for a general manager as productive as it is at the office? I would say yesterday was more productive because I was able to tune out from the, the telephone. I, I kind of went up in the home office, threw on a pair of sweatpants, and dug in on the computer. Oh, and I got you a could have made a dollar. trade in a pair of sweatpants. Then It wouldn't be the first trade that's ever made <laughs> in a pair of sweatpants. <laughs> Well, I'm glad things uh, things were okay. You know, we had our first uh, snow day with kids. It snowed here before since we've had kids, but we haven't had a snow day with a child in preschool. And so we quickly realized that we were very ill-prepared to raise children in the snow when we were double-lining jeans and sweatpants, ankle socks, and rain boots, uh, and like basically mittens that were crocheted by a great-grandmother, which basically deteriorate in snow the minute that they get wet. Uh, so we've got, I think we've got a long ways to go in the parenting department and how to raise kids in the snow. But, I mean, it's the most snow I've ever seen in my almost seven years in Seattle. So I have a feeling we're going to go out, we're going to buy all the equipment, and we're not going to use it till they outgrow it. I, I've been told that, that we're supposed to get it for another three, four days next week. But, so, true story. On my way back from downtown to, to my house yesterday, I stopped at a True Value Hardware. And I popped in because I don't have the power finale required to clear snow anymore in my in my current state. So I walked in and I said to the guy at the counter in True Value, "Hey, can you point me toward the snow shovels?" And he, and he went, "We don't carry snow shovels." I said, "Don't carry a snow shovel." He said, "We've got kids snow shovels." <laughs> so I bought a kid snow shovel. <laughs> no, you didn't. Yes, I did. How's your lower back doing? Uh, just okay. The the lower back is just okay. But, the, you know, the Bulldogs, they don't get too far off the ground, and they needed a clear space sure. to do their business. I mean, they're scraping their chin on it, aren't they? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you get six inches of snow, they can't get through there. Six inches? I mean, it may as well be there. They're swimming. Uh, the idea, what color is the kid's snow shovel, by the way? Is this blue. Blue, okay. Yeah. I think we can all process the mental image of a general manager shoveling snow in a three-foot-tall blue snow shovel. In sweatpants. In sweatpants. <laughs> Well, this is episode 40 of The Wheelhouse. And remember, you can always subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. And if you feel so inclined, go ahead and give us a rating. Uh, Colin's bonus relies on that. Uh, 40 episodes, Jerry. This is pretty good stuff, man. Thanks for all the time over the year and change. Historic. Well, we, we, we have. I mean, the maestro has definitely cracked the whip on occasion over these last 
40 episodes, but well, he's trying, to, the plan, least he's trying to plan your entire 2019 for you already. He was. He's, he's presenting me with 2021 dates for <laughs> sitting down. And there's a, All right, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, it's good to plan. Jerry, are you free on January 18th of 2020 at roughly 3 p.m.? That's the point we actually plan on being in first place. Yes. <laughs> Perfect. That's why you set that date. Well, hey, this will be our last face-to-face podcast before spring training. Will you be driving to spring training again? Not driving this year. Yeah. So, so because of the trip to Tokyo to start the season, the shorter truncated spring, you know, we, my wife and I typically drive, as you know, make the journey, good tunes, stop along the way at some triple D spots, take the dogs. They're going to stay here to, to start the, the spring, and she's going to fly down shortly after I get there. But we didn't want to kind of transition the dogs down there, strand our car, because we're flying back into Seattle, and then we're stuck. How much does Japan alter the first, I don't know, couple of weeks of the season and certainly spring training for your club? It, it alters it quite a bit. We have to ramp our pitchers up and, and have them maybe a tick ahead of the rest of the league in terms of their preparation. Maybe more importantly is, is the way our, we transition our team from Phoenix or Peoria to Tokyo we're going to have to leave behind a full team's worth of players to continue to play spring training games in Arizona. So we're going to spring training this year with just about 70 players, and, and we're still on the lookout for kind of buyer specials. You know, the, those players on the market who may fall to us on a minor league deal and, and just bring them into camp and give them an opportunity to win a spot. But it's going to provide a ton of opportunity for our young players Many of those that we've picked up in some of these off-season deals that you wouldn't otherwise see in Major League Camp or players that, that are maybe far enough back in the system that they would not be uh, in uh, very many Cactus League games, you're going to see the Jared Kelenics and the Julio Rodriguez and in, in A-games facing real big league competition at a, at a much earlier stage in their careers than you otherwise would. And I think the players are excited for that because they are aware that that's coming. Super Bowl is in the books, so for a lot of people that means it is officially baseball season already, even though we are still ways away from pitchers and catchers. When do you kind of start to get the itch for, hey, it's time to get in the sun and get spring training going? Roughly the Monday morning after the season ends. <laughs> no, I think here, this offseason particularly, it's the offseason is more the offseason for the players. You know, it's, uh, I know during the time when, when I was an active player, you got that first four or five weeks of, of the off season, and, and that was your chance to take a breath, to, to, to throw it into cruise control, to see your wife, to, to visit with your kids, to get to know them again, uh, to be human, really. And here in, the, in these roles as, as baseball executives, front office, our off season is, is maybe more intensive than the regular season, particularly with as much heavy lifting as we had this year with so many transactions and and a lot of planning and even here in the month of January despite the fact that we traded virtually every player that was going to arbitration so it it seemed like we should have uh, maybe lesser lifting it was even heavier lifting because we had so much so many of our programs to build and put in place for this new group of players and then we spent a ton of time with the individuals uh, 
guys like JP and Justice and Malix who came in last week, and even before them, JP and Omar Narvaez were down in Arizona with us. We had the opportunity to have the Kikuchis in for the better part of a week. It's been one stream after another of players coming in to visit all offseason. So I, I, the offseason now is, is, is more for players than for us. How will you be evaluating players during spring training with the different schedule? Will it be different this year, or will it be basically all things normal? Actually, it'll, it will be different in that we will probably evaluate players in spring training. As, as I first got off the field and into scouting, one of the very first lessons I learned was that it's very dangerous to evaluate players in March and in September. And, you know, the, the reason being in March, a lot of the, the veteran players are just getting into their groove, and the pitchers have a great advantage over the hitters early on. And in September, you get a lot of, let's call it energetic upstarts who tend to take off and sprint or young players who, when they get their first opportunity at the major league level, panic a little bit. And it's not very representative on either end of of what their true capabilities are. So typically, you, you leave your professional scouting to April through August, and, and then you can really get a feel in October for how they'll re- react in, in stressful situations. But in the spring, a, a quick funny story, in 2002, I was, at, I was covering spring training, and it was the first time that I'd gone to a spring training as a non-player. And I went to uh, cover the Texas Rangers at the time, and, and Rafael Palmero was, was with the, the Rangers. And I'm watching Rafi Palmero take his first couple of swings in the, in the early days in spring training. And on my report, this guy's done. He can't it's, – it's, he's old. It's time for him to hang it up. Oh, I, I want to say it was something like 36 and 120 later – he had some life left in him, and and uh, you know it was so easy at that time to write players off, even though I had just walked away from the field, because you don't think about it when you're preparing. You always think you're ready, but when you step on the other side of the screen and you see that the pace is just developing in the early days of spring training, it's it's not the greatest place to evaluate. But with young players, you can get a feel for them. So, what are you most looking forward to about this spring training? the energy that we'll feel when we get there. Usually spring training is an energetic time. You know, you get down there, the old baseball adage, hope springs eternal. It's never more so than the first week of pitchers and catchers where you get the the real diehard fans that are out there behind the screens watching the guys throw. Everybody feels energized those first couple of mornings until the bodies start to hurt and they realize, man, we're back at it. Uh, I want to see the young guys get out there, the, the buzz in the camp. I want to see Kikuchi and Justice Sheffield and Justin Dunn and Eric Swanson throw their first bullpens, maybe more than I've ever looked forward to bullpens. It's, it's fun to watch young guys step on the mound, and they want to show off in the, in the early days and, and show you kind of what they have. I also want to see the, the staff come together. You know, Scott, we have a rebuilt major league coaching staff that that I'm really curious to see how they start to put the pieces together, not just the players on the field, but the programs that they run and, you know, how they lead. So there's a lot for us to learn this spring, more so than than most others I can recall. When you bring up the bullpens, last year there seemed to be a really strong camaraderie among the Mariners starting rotation, and there was a appointment viewing to see unless you were starting that night's game to go watch the bullpen of your fellow rotation mates this seemed to be something that just kind of happened very naturally 
uh, LeBlanc and Gonzalez, Paxton, those guys kind of seem to have sparked this interest that you kind of saw in years past in, with teams with great pitching culture like the Rays. I mean, this is something that I've heard David Price talk about when he was in Tampa Bay, even doing it in spring training. How pleased were you with what you saw happen from kind of a leadership standpoint and a camaraderie standpoint with the rotation last year? I think it's huge. You know, bullpens generally, uh, it, when, when I say bullpens, the relief pitchers, generally bond quickly because they're trapped in a cage together for nine <laughs> innings every night, you know, and they flick sunflower seeds at one another and make fun of the other guy. But, you know, the starting rotation is a little different. They're on a more regimented, they're going to pitch once every fifth day. They're getting their, their weight room workout in during the early part of the game oftentimes. So it's a little more fractured. And I'm going to give credit to Marco and to Mike Leak. You know, the, the time that those two guys spent in St. Louis with the Cardinals, Shocking that the Cardinals would do something that, that makes baseball sense. Sure. But the Cardinals, dating back to the time with Daryl Kyle and later Adam Wainwright and Chris Carpenter, you know, they had developed a culture of, of this kind of togetherness. And when the, when the pitchers who's throwing his bullpen on his bullpen day heads down, the others go with him and watch. And then they offer critique and sit down and talk about what they saw. Mike and Marco brought that to us in, in 2017 when they first joined the, the Mariners. And, and I don't remember which went first, but it quickly became part of our culture. And now it's something that I think virtually all of them do with one another. And it's, uh, it's very encouraging. And it got to the point last year where oftentimes a lot of the bullpen guys would start to gravitate down there and, and just make it more of a pitching thing, which is, of course, 90% of the game. <laughs> How do we feel about Marco changing the number to number seven? We like this? I mean, you got to be an athlete as a pitcher you know, to wear number seven, Jay. And he is. He is an Absolutely. athlete. Absolutely. We are, we are going to be the first rotation in history that has two single-digit pitchers in uh, Marco and Mike, number seven and eight. Uh, feels – and I, I said to Marco when we were doing our, our media week last week, and he was wearing his jersey, number seven – I, I said, you know, it seemed it seemed better in theory than it does when I look at it. <laughs> oh, come on, that's <laughs> a know, shot. It's a and 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 he laughed. It's a, I I think to you know you do you have to be athletic to pull off not just a single digit but number seven. But, you know, absolutely. Let's face I mean, you're it, an option quarterback. You were number yeah, seven. Yeah, I mean, you're the big daddies here. You're you're. This is John Elway. For this sure. is this is Mickey Mantle. You know, it, that's a, it's not. It, it's like wearing number one. The spotlight is on you. So. You know, Marco has that that kind of athleticism that really stands out, but it it takes it takes some some guts to to pull off a single digit as a starting pitcher in this league as any pitcher. So go get him. Getting back to his college roots, where he wore number seven, which you know I asked Leak about number eight, and he said that that was kind of the same thing. He wore it at Arizona State, so both these guys getting back to and both guys can swing the bat. Both are great athletes, so that's right. They both can pull it off. This will be for sure a different feel to camp in Peoria in your own mind when you think about different players different coaching staff from a fan's point of view the players element of it is the biggest change but how big of a change is it for Scott to start to kind of develop his coaching staff to all work together like they're a well-oiled machine come opening day this is, I mean, for all staffs, this is when they start to really do their thing is the early days of spring training. They get there before the sun comes up. They, they, they're working. It's the staff meetings are incessant. And it's not carving through players and trying to figure out who's going to be your fifth starter and who's going to pitch the seventh inning. 
it's trying to, to learn the needs of that particular coaching staff, no matter how long they're together. The thing I know about Scott is Scott's roots are in player development, and he is a developmental personality in general. He always takes that kind of care and TLC with the staff. And I know he's looking forward to this spring training, maybe more than any other since 2016, which was his first as manager, more than any other since 2016 because he gets to go in and roll up his sleeves and just be the development coach. And and that's not just for the players. That's for the staff. It's for the people around him, guys like Paul Davis, Tim Laker, who's been on a major league staff for a couple of years, Paul Davis, who this is his first shot, Brian DeLunis, who's now coming in and more of – a position of oversight. Jim Brower and Chris Prieto are moving to new roles that they've never worked in before. Uh, I think as a result, there'll be a lot of leaning on guys like Manny Acta and Perry Hill, who've had so much experience in a variety of different roles. And I think Scott identified those guys as as real helpful uh, in our continued education seminar two weeks ago. We were down, and Perry was the the superstar of the show. It blew everybody away with his presentations. I don't feel like we've talked enough Perry Hill in this platform. This is a guy that when that hire was made, it was like people coming out of the woodwork raving about Perry Hill. And I think for most casual fans of the game, even diehard Mariners fans, they read a press release or they see a clipping up. Perry Hill is hired by the Mariners. Can you tell us a little bit more about what he'll be doing and why it is this is such a great fit for the club? I, I would say, having gotten to know Perry a little bit, Perry is a, he's 66 years old. Uh, he has been coaching in professional baseball now for, for north of 40 years. And he brings with him an unusual brand of energy. That is, it'd be shocking if he was 26, but, but what he is able to do at his age uh, physically and, and how quickly uh, he gets out there and starts bouncing around is remarkable and keeps himself in great shape. He also has what I would say is uniform respect around the league from players, coaches, managers, executives, the, the, the like. When he goes somewhere, his voice resonates because no matter what your genre, if you come from any one of those backgrounds, be it player, coach, whatever, uh, Perry is is wildly respected to the point that two points I'll make. Uh, one, he's generally regarded as the gold glove maker. You know, it's a you know, like a Rudy Aramillo used to be the MVP maker. Perry Hill is the the gold glove maker, and where generally where he goes, I, let's call it a tight ship follows. You wind up you wind up playing better, more more kind of airtight defense. And uh, I guess one of his star pupils in, in times past was D. Gordon, who he transitioned from shortstop to second base and turned him into a gold glover there. And, you know, few people were more excited than D. when Perry joined uh, the Mariners. And the second story is that when you're bringing in an infield guy who is as well-renowned as Perry, and, you know, it's, his reputation precedes him, let's say, uh, Scott picked up the phone and he called Manny Acta who otherwise was was navigating working with our infielders. And, and he said, hey, we have a chance to bring bring in Perry Hill. How would you feel about Perry you know, taking over the infield play? And Manny said, ah, oh, Scott, if you got a chance to bring in Perry Hill, get him. He's the best. That's, that is, to me, the ultimate sign of, of respect is when another high-level major league infield coach defers to you. And, you know, that's the kind of pop that Perry has. He's already – 
that rolled up his sleeves. You dig in with J.P. Crawford uh, two weeks ago down in Peoria. And when asked after that first day of workouts, you know, J.P. was out on the field with him first thing in the morning. And this is a morning in January with with a major league player out on the field with a major league coach uh, just by himself with a fungo and a glove. And and, uh, we asked J.P. afterward, how was that? And he said, I wasn't expecting that this quick. <laughs> so it's uh you know he, he got after it really quickly and and my guess is that Perry Hill just by his sheer will makes us a better defensive team on the infield for sure. Now it was Manny really who was the orchestrator of the shift, right? And we heard his whistle from Which he will still do. He will still be in charge yes. of that? Okay. So there will be some teamwork between Manny and Perry in terms of philosophy and how that goes about but ultimately that is a manny decision correct so it's a is it because of the whistle oh i think it's the whistle it's the, it's the general feel for navigating what scott's thinking or the way we set up the the advanced scouting but as is always the case there has to be some type of of kind of back and forth with the specialty coach and the, let's call it the eye in the sky so it's you know while Perry is the one fundamentally working with the infielders on on footwork you know footwork getting your arm up to throw turning a double play the nuances of of playing defense you know Manny has a real feel for what we do in terms of of moving the field so to speak and and you know he'll continue to play a, a huge part in that and I, I don't I can't possibly go to a game without having Manny whistling because that's, <laughs> that's when I know it's on. It's one of a kind. Let's talk about some of the other elements of your coaching staff. You're in a position where you have a new pitching coach and a new hitting coach this year. Tim Laker comes over from Arizona. Tell us a little bit about what made him such an attractive fit. Well, first of all, he's been in baseball for a long time. Tim Tim came up right about the same time Scott and I did, uh, among others that, that have graced our staff. But he played a long playing career between you know minor league and major league opportunity uh parts of uh, probably 10 seasons or so at the big league level as a catcher uh, and tim was uh, tim was one of the first of of the former player to start really embracing the, some of the the new uh, let's call it beliefs in in the way hitting is taught and you know, he worked with Wallenbrock and Menskoyak in Southern California for years as as a, let, let's call it, as their link to the, the pro game. And, you know, Tim brought with him a lot of credibility from his time on the field, then went into uh, a post-playing career that included coaching and managing, including managing our Jackson team in 2010. And ultimately, it was the hitting that really that drew him in. And he went back to – he left managing, went back to the hitting side, really wanted to incorporate a lot of what he'd learned in, in terms of, of the new swing dynamics. And, you know, he brought that to the field. He's worked with players like Justin Turner and Mitch Haniger uh, and, and many others along the way, J.D. Martinez. And, and has seen the benefits of what these types of teachings, the Elevate and Celebrate generation does. And, and he believes in it. It's, it's not just lip service. He believes in it. And he has the credibility when he walks into a batting cage of not only someone who played at, at the highest level, but someone who believes in what the players want to learn. 
and you know it's a that's a great tool it's it's a it's a great tool to have he's a he's a really down to earth kind of down the middle guy who immediately resonates with the players because from a personality standpoint he's he is not he doesn't put himself on a pedestal he gets right down in the trenches and works with these guys and he's been great so far i'm i'm interested in your thoughts on I'm sure you've purchased your 2019 Bill James handbook, right? Of course. Does Bill just yeah. like direct send that to you? Yes. Right to the ballpark? Yes. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So one of he wrote something in this year's edition that I was really interested in, as I think any modern baseball fan would be interested in. Here's Bill James saying that he thinks, this is a quote, the launch angle thing, I think, has pretty much played itself out. It changed the game a little bit, but didn't actually do any good. So the effects of that should wash out after a few years. I don't mean that nobody benefited from getting a better launch angle. Some hitters did. But what I'm saying, this is Bill James, is that on balance there's no real effect. As many hitters were hurt by trying to do that as were helped, it was a fad, no more no more than a trend, granting that the definitions of fad and trend overlap. Which I thought was obviously fascinating that Bill James is saying that. So he thinks this is kind of a here for a few years and done. What are your thoughts on that? I think we're still at the at the onset of let's call it a revolution, mm-hmm. so to speak. The players will define what what they will define what the trend is. You know, we're all just waiting to see. Uh, by and large, whether it was at the at the turn of the last century, not, you know, not the one we're in now, but the last century, whether it was Christy Mathewson introducing, the, you know, a changeup, or you know, the, the in the the 1800s with Al Spalding spinning a hook for the first time, They're, the players usually define what the next coming trend is, and if we've not seen yet the benefits that a lot of these new uh, the launch angle techniques provide. Look at guys like Chris Taylor and Justin Turner and J.D. Martinez and Mitch Haniger, and and watch the way they've changed their careers in a meaningful way. And I, I don't think it's something that's kind of here today, gone tomorrow. I think this is baseball as we know it. There's there are so many trends, especially in these last three years, that are changing the game in what I think is a permanent way. The way we use a pitching staff, the way we develop pitchers and, and our expectations of them, the way we teach a swing. There's the, the fact is, over the last three years, the ball is leaving the park more often because the, the hitters are swinging up. And, and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. It has definitely harmed the, the, the strikeout rates, which is also being exacerbated by the fact that pitchers are pitching for a strikeout. They're throwing harder for shorter intervals, and and the breaking balls have become more violent, which is in turn reducing inning totals. So we are we're building a game that's more power centric, and that I don't think is going to go away because uh, by and large anybody who has experienced power, you know, and, and it likes power. <laughs> I mean, there's we, we like to swing big, we like to throw big, and you know, it, I know we're. We, we were having a conversation. This is taking you inside our continued education meeting. We had a pitching group sitting in a, in a room. There's, I would say, 30 Mariner employees that are in some way hooked up to our pitching department, from Paul Davis, our major league pitching coach, to, to Max Wiener, our, our minor league coordinator, to Brian DeLunis, et cetera. Uh, we're, we're sitting in the room, and, and it just happened to be a moment when I was attending the meeting. And I'm sitting there with one of our special assistant coaches, Pete Harnish, who was a teammate of mine in the 90s with the Mets. And 
And I happened to be sitting next to Pete, and Paul was leading a conversation. And he was talking about the nuance of pitching with your fastball. And he said, you know, the, the starter can pitch with his A fastball or his B fastball. You know, it's just a matter of, of adding movement or location. He said, he said, Jerry, how many times during the course of your career did you, did you pitch with the A fastball versus the B fastball? And I, I just let the silence fall, and I said, I said, Paul, I just want to let you know, I only had one. You know, it was A, and it was A all the time. And, and, and you know, Pete said, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about either, bro. I only had one. <laughs> I, uh, the, it's it's when, when you have the ability to throw hard, you want to throw hard. When you, you have the ability to hit it far, you want to hit it far. And it's only after you lose that ability or it starts to wane that you come up with some creative way of navigating around whatever that loss is, the loss of power. And it's probably the greatest lesson that you have to learn as a young player is how to harness the power and not want to use it all the time. Is, uh, is the first time you see on the gun that you can throw 95, it's unacceptable to throw a pitch less than 95, mostly because you want to walk back in the dugout and, and bow up. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, go beat that. Similarly with the guy who's throwing at the, at the top of the velocity chain. You know, it, it, it's the, the, they want you to know how hard they throw. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's almost a, it's a status symbol. So I think in this era of power, we're not likely to see it retreat the other way because the players now have a taste for it and they're going to keep pushing it. And, and we as, as developmental teams, we want to see it because it, it makes, a more dominant, makes for a more dominant outcome. It's just a, a simple numbers game. I mean, it's similar to what happens in basketball with your BFF, Daryl Morey. You know, when you want to shoot a three or you want to shoot a layup, long twos, they just don't have a good shooting percentage. And same for grounders. It isn't as if there's going to be some revolution in the game where all of a sudden grounders are much more likely to result in base hits than they did previously. Ball in the air is more likely to be a hit, and it's just basic numbers. This isn't a revolutionary thing. We had this conversation, and, and I didn't even have to call my BFF to make it happen. We had this conversation last year in midsummer, just sitting down in the office, carving it up. For years and years, as baseball people, we were taught to swing down on the ball. It's, a, it's, it's the way every one of us was taught from the time we were in Little League through the major leagues. Swing down. Only now do we realize that's what are we gaining by swinging down on the ball? First of all, you'll never, at, at, a, at an age where more pitchers elevate than ever before, there are fewer sinkers thrown right now than, than at any time in my professional life. And... And I guess that means there's fewer than have ever been thrown since it was even more dominant. There are like the, three sinker ball pitchers in baseball. In the, right in the league. We just happen to have yeah. one of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, or one and a half. But the, I think there's at a time when there are more pitchers elevating the ball, teaching the, the swing down, is a, it's, just, it's wrong. It, it doesn't really work in today's game. And one of the things we do through analysis is we look for the frequency with which a hitter hits a fly ball or a ground ball. And, you know, if we find guys who have strong exit velocities who hit the ball on the ground, we see opportunity. You know, if, if we see guys who hit the ball in the air softly, we, we might not see as much opportunity. But, you know, Evan White is a great example of a guy who, who has been in our system now for a couple of years. He hits the ball extremely hard about as hard as anybody we have in our system but spent so much of his time swinging down and driving it into the ground 
and only you know two thirds of the way through last season did 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 or were we able to change the angle of the bat? He did, and and the results were dynamic. And that, again, once players get the taste for that, it's really hard to, to get them to go back the other way. There's they don't want to go do things that are less powerful when they know they can do something that's that has impact. Speaking of the pitching side of things. New pitching coach for the Mariners this year in Paul Davis, who you've referenced. He, a lot like Laker, has a pretty unique and interesting background. Can you tell us a little bit about him and the decision to bring him on board? Yeah, Paul, we've, we've, uh, we've dubbed Paul the pitching professor. He is, uh, he's a former college professor who, uh, you know, Paul— His little, subject was? Uh, it, just about anything you want. He, he actually ran—this is a true story— uh, Paul, I, I, his background is is math, right? And he is a, a very unique guy. It's a his he is a Brent Strom disciple, which is how well, we that were, works. Yeah, we were we were led to him uh, via Brent Strom, Astros pitching coach. For those who don't know, who formerly was with the St. Louis Cardinals, which is which is how Paul landed with the Cardinals a number of years back. Uh, Paul, his his son actually runs the the analytics department for the Milwaukee Brewers. So you know, it's he he comes from a, a background first, you know, college professor who was everything from professor to baseball coach to at one point I believe uh, oversaw the athletic department at a small university in Nebraska that no longer exists. Uh, but has has been on the on the baseball scene since the mid 1980s. First as a player, then as a coach, uh, an administrator, and and just about everything in between. He he has an expertise in biomechanics. He has a he is particularly adept at the idea of pitch tunneling and layering. Is is something that he spends a lot of his time on. And while we are constantly in search of finding ways that we can give pitcher advantage. In terms of uh, in terms of pitch usage or or pitch development, Paul is much more concerned with the latter. It's the it's the way we develop the pitches, and, and then how we we I guess how we sequence those pitches or how we use them in relation to one another. And he's got a much smarter way of putting the words together than most guys you're going to run across. And you know he's uh, he's never coached at the major league level. He has been a coordinator and pitching coach at the minor league levels, but comes with about as good a, a resume as you can have for a guy that's not been at this level yet. Has a very smart approach to what we're doing, and and we feel like we can give him the tools in areas where he needs help, and he can give us something that we just can't access elsewhere. Which is a really open-minded approach to how to couple progressive-minded analytical views of pitching with practical application and, and high-end talent at the biggest level. I assume he and Brian DeLunis will be speaking on a fairly regular basis during the season with Brian's promotion? They already do. And, you know, Brian moved from the field into an oversight position. He will now oversee a lot of the pitching, well, our organizational pitching development so it, Paul, he will work with Paul on the major league side. He will work with Max on the minor league side. And Brian has a group of pitching strategists that we put together. So is that, This is the panel of pitching strategists? He does. He has a panel. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's, it's of, this is something that we're really excited about on both the pitching and hitting sides. 
Brian is is clearly really we think one of the, the foremost experts in pitching biomechanics in the industry. He is really advanced in his ability to take the tech and turn it into practical application. And that goes from Rapsodo to what we're seeing with TrackMan to 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 using the the motion capture video and, and transitioning it in a moment. Uh, very adept at reading spin rates and determining how we can improve them in a given way. And he spends most of his time breaking down our pitchers and who has a chance to get better in a given area. Uh, and he might identify 10 or 12 pitchers that we can work with in a, in a moment in time and help them grow in some meaningful way. And we're going to do that this year through employing a group of strategists who work anywhere from the biomechanic realm to the strategic and game planning realm. And we're doing the same thing on the hitting side with Justin, Dustin Lind and Jarrett DeHart and, and Tim Laker. And, and, you know, we're hopeful that this group can incorporate a lot of the new aged teachings and technologies with kind of the old school practical coaching application. Like the media guide, will it double in length with these additional? Like this Only if I'm talking, <laughs> clearly, yeah. It's very cool. It's, did this kind of happen naturally this idea of the panel and that type of thing or was this something that was a, a clear thought that somebody came in and presented no this was it just happened naturally so you know obviously we hired brian delonis to come on board and he served last year as our bullpen coach we started to see the the impact that he could have in bigger ways than just sitting with a group of seven or eight guys on a nightly basis which is when we decided that we wanted to go down this road and when we started exploring you know it, it was only the, the next logical guess, avenue was that if Brian was going to sit in more of a home office and, and determine where we could make a difference, you needed to have hands. You needed to have hands who could, who could get out and work with the guys at, at a, on a different level than maybe we should expect out of a pitching coach. Uh, your standard pitching coach can't possibly sit there, digest all the Rapsodo, TrackMan, you know, motion capture video – and work with the pitcher on mental skills, delivery, and, and, and generally keep them in a positive place over the course of a 25 to 35 start season. That's, that's really hard. So we, we effectively split the duties between our pitching strategists and our pitching coaches. And this past offseason, or I guess this current offseason, we spent so much of our time having all of these guys working together and the result has been, and I, and I believe this is the number is pretty accurate. Right now, we have about fifty pitchers down in Peoria, which is at this time of year usually we'll have five or ten. Right now, we have about fifty because they all want to be there working with these groups, and uh, including our most famous new acquisition, Yusei Kikuchi, showed up yesterday. So uh, they're down there and they're working with our strategists and our pitching coaches. Uh, Brian is in the in the transition mode of moving from his home in St. Louis to Seattle, so he's not down there with them just yet. But we're very excited about what's happening with that group. Yeah, big times in the Delunas family. Very cool stuff for him and, and his whole crew. Jerry, it is uh, for sure prospect season. We know that very much. Everybody has come up with their top 100 lists in the game. I know when we talked last year about kind of predictions that the media makes this time of year, uh, you were – very open to say saying that you read a lot of that your your crew reads a lot of that what have you made of a lot of the top 100 prospect boards which have basically they all have uh sheffield and kellenic representing the mariners in the top 100 if not another one or two 
Yeah, I think, well, depending on who is, is evaluating, you know, it's, if it's Baseball America, I think they had four of our guys. If it's, you know, I think, Keith Law, ESPN had three. They're, they're, we've been anywhere between two and four of the top 100 uh, on various services. And for the most part, those two or four players, I think, are all very deserving top 100 guys. We also think we have another one or two, maybe three, who, if not on the back end of that top 100, are just being, like, let's call it, they're being missed. And, and among them, I, we, we think one of our most extraordinary prospects is Julio Rodriguez, who has not shown up on any of these lists yet. I mean, are these people not on Instagram? Yeah, Do they just not watch, know about Julio? Man, just watch. Just follow him on Twitter. He's, uh, he's so fun, and you know we, we feel like Julio has a chance to, to, by midsummer, really start to make up some ground there. We think a healthy Kyle Lewis, uh, who's been a top 50 prospect in the game for the past two years, uh, despite really not being on the field. Uh, you know, sometimes when you go through these prospect rankings and you do them, they're exhaustive. Yeah, there's 15 different sites that, that are going to rank prospects. They all do it in a slightly different way. And we have our own internal rankings. And, and we do rankings for the other 29 teams as well, mostly to see, A, who are the targets we want to acquire, but, B, where do we stand in the industry? And as a general rule, like the talent level at the big league level, when you get in the, the middle pack, it's really tight. You know, Somebody's 15 might be somebody else's 12 or somebody's 17. It is what it is. But you know, the fact that we are now we are now – capable of fielding four or five of the top 100 prospects in the game, that we've built depth on top of that. Uh, I think as you see the fan graphs list come out, you'll see them do it in a slightly different way where they attach a monetary value to it or, or a war value on the back end. And that's interesting and closer to what we do. You know, we're we're creating a long-term value to the player that is maybe a little different than just flat-out scouting uh intuition and right now with guys like shed long and logan gilbert and kyle lewis and julio rodriguez who we feel like have every chance to be top 100 type guys they've just not been there and when you get guys like kyle lewis and and justice sheffield and even jp crawford who still just turned 24 years old uh just last week i think when you get guys like that who've been through the top 100 ringer three and four years in a row and they and they've started as rookie ballers and they've made their way to the big leagues and gotten a cup of coffee and they just haven't turned into stars immediately a lot of times that you know that the prospect fatigue will set in and you'll start undervaluing guys because they didn't turn into Mike Trout or Bryce Harper immediately some of them get there at a different pace so while we're really proud of the fact that we have two to four of these top 100 guys, we think there are another handful that deserve to be in that discussion. And I do think that, that while the fatigue has set in for guys like JP or Justice Sheffield, these are real big league prospects. And, and don't let the semantics of whether he has X number of service days or not you know, dissuade you from believing that these are future impact players for the Mariners because we're really excited about them. To be fair to Ben Badler, a senior writer at Baseball America, he is on Instagram and in an Instagram story chat said of Julio Rodriguez, I think you're going to see him on a top 100 in the future. Gigantic power, and I'm a fan of the swing slash ability to translate it against live pitching. Very young, but a potential middle-of-the-order impact bat. 
it's only fitting that that would be communicated on Instagram. Naturally. Because I mean, to be fair to people who are evaluating these types of things, it hasn't really been easy to watch Julio Rodriguez play in person. No. And, and for the most part, and I think this is one of the things I find most, uh, I guess, easy to respect about the, the prospect grading systems, most of them aren't out there actually watching the players. They're just looking at performance and then trying to balance it with the lens of signing bonus, prospect pedigree, draft position, which is part of the nuance we do. You know, we have a, we have a model that we run our players through, and, and all of that is weighted to a certain degree. And they're doing the same things at Fangraphs, and they're doing the same things at the Houston Astros it's, and 28 other clubs. Everybody now has some type of formula by which they conclude where the value lies in this player. And it's why you see, uh, I guess, so many teams now are geared toward the same or through the same lens of player evaluation. And at, at some point in the bottleneck, you have to find a way to identify a player who's different than the others and take a little bit more risk. And to me, that avenue is the international market is when you are out there and you're watching 15- and 16-year-old young players in Latin America and, and or you're watching the 16- or 18-year-olds in Asia or Australia, that's your separator is that there is no data. There's nothing you can measure uh, outside of the physical attributes of the player, and, and it's good old-fashioned scouting, and that's what led us to Julio Rodriguez. And there is an advantage to be found there by simply having good baseball people who can identify with an eye. Without giving up any of your internal rankings that might be uh, very private, can you kind of quantitate where you evaluate your farm system the second the final out of the regular season was made to where it is right now as we speak today? When the final out was made, we thought we were somewhere toward number 30. You know, Whether that was number 28 or number 30, it was, it was something in that general range for roughly three years. We never thought we were much better than 28. Uh, end of season last year, we thought we were 30. And where we finished this offseason or where we head into spring training, we feel like we've, we're somewhere now in the 10 to 12 range. And the way we view our system as compared to the league around us, and we feel like we're one prospect graduation, one leap forward by a healthy Kyle Lewis, by a Julio Rodriguez, or one more draft that looks like 2018. And if we're able to replicate that one more time and, and allow this to gestate, then then we grow forward. The nuance is, and this is just how you evaluate your own players, the nuance is that we may, we may tab in as the 15th best system or the 12th best system on somebody's rankings, but at the end of the day, and, and maybe ours, at the end of the day, if we do our job, we should come in next year having moved down because we'll have graduated players like JP, like like Justice Sheffield, like Yusei Kikuchi, who in some systems is still categorized as a prospect. And I don't think that means you move backward. We're just we're gathering up young talent and assets. And the more we can get that are ready to play at the big league level, the better. Do you feel like your momentum from winning Stump JD last episode will carry over to today? I always I, I'm, I'm an oddly confident fellow. <laughs> Especially in this category. This is a fairly straightforward question. Once again, Jerry, I think I should be commended for consecutive straightforward questions. Which pair of siblings, Jerry, combined to set the record for the most career home runs in Major League history? Siblings. Hank and Tommy Aaron. 
Jerry? Jerry. I'm so happy for 2008. you. 2008. You, can, you, can you guess the number of home runs for bonus points? 763. Very close. 768. <sighs> 755, of course. Just have bad eyes. Threes and eights. Yeah. <laughs> and then 13 for Tommy. Happy birthday, by the way, to Hank Aaron. Happy, no doubt. Hank Aaron, I will say this, like in baseball royalty, when, when in my lifetime, when you're sitting in a clubhouse or you're sitting at a, at a meeting room and there are certain players that walk into rooms, and Hank Aaron's one of them, where it almost takes your breath away as a, as a fan. Hank Aaron, Sandy Koufax, the very first time I ever saw Joe DiMaggio walk into a room. Mickey Mantle was that way. You know, it's just, you said it, I didn't. Yeah, come on. Tom Seaver. You can say it out loud. It's a, yeah, why did you bury him for like the sixth? How did you not I'm lead sure. with him? It's the, those type guys, when they walk into a room, and Hank Aaron, the the dignity with which mm-hmm. they carry themselves, it's just kind of it's, – it's, it's something maybe that you'll learn over time. I can't imagine in 1955 that Hank Aaron walked into a room and it was just that you felt like he was carrying a train and a, and a crown. But that's the way it seems today. Sure. And, you know, there, there are a small handful that live at that elite level, and he's one of them. Willie Mays is another. Tommy had a way to go, 13 dingers, which, you know, hey, 13 big league home runs, baby. That's 13 more than the rest of us have. That's right. But, man, that's tough company when your bro's got 755. Really, it's better that way than if your brother had, like, 14, right? If you miss your – I mean, 14, you get 13, like, you're never going to hear the end of that. There, and th- there are brothers, like, I wonder, in, in, in situations where it's close, mm-hmm. you know, where where you get where you get the brothers like, you know Lee May Carlos May like we're we're in their heyday they were they were competing sure no nah, not, not so much yeah. with the Aaron's. I think you're better off with the separation some uh, listener question for you this is uh, Tim checking in from Biloxi uh, he's a loyal listener in Mississippi and he has two questions uh, Jerry when you evaluate a hitter do you prefer to look at OPS plus or WRC plus, and I'll save time for the second question. But you, I'm interested in your answer. But also, if you wouldn't mind uh, for context, can you just give a quick definition of both of those metrics? My my first response is we're global, man. <laughs> That's right, Biloxi, Mississippi. That I, I they're essentially the same thing. There, there's you know WRC plus or weighted runs carried plus and OPS plus are a way of normalizing a player's productivity. And I guess it, without getting too far lost in the weeds, it it makes Coors Field just like T-Mobile, just like Yankee Stadium, and it normalizes each league to its time, if that makes sense. So, you know, it, that we can look historically at players on an even playing field using those metrics. Uh, same thing is true of ERA+, Plus, is, is we're just taking 100 and making it average. So 101 you are slightly above average. 120, you're really good. Uh, 80, you got a little way to go. But the as as in terms of which one you'd prefer to use, we use both at different points in time. I use weighted runs created plus uh, almost exclusively when we're looking at minor league players, largely because OPS plus doesn't translate. So baseball reference, which is OPS plus centric, they don't, they don't, take the number and translate it for a minor league player but fan graphs and weighted runs created plus they do 
So when we're looking at a, at a player's weighted runs created plus at the minor league level, which is effectively that player's performance for his league and that 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 competition with 100 being average, uh, you know when we see and I'm going to bring up Mitch Haniger, when Mitch Haniger in 2016 is running a, a weighted runs created plus of 180, it's it's a notable number. That's that's like Mike Trout in the minor leagues. Uh, similarly, at the major league level, if you look at Mike Trout's weighted runs created plus, it's almost always going to be something just about on par with with OPS plus. They don't vary very far apart. And while you know, I guess the the way that they're created is slightly different, they're both telling the same story. You know, how much damage does this this player do? How frequently does he do, do, does he do it? And if they were all in neutral ballparks playing against the same competition. How would we qualify him versus the others? And and therefore, I think it's just six and one, half dozen of the other. We tend to lean toward weighted runs created plus because it just it's easier to access across all levels of play. But OPS plus is effectively the same story. O'Keefe's firstborn child will actually be WRC plus O'Keefe. I'm pretty sure about that. Which this question does Number come seven. in. Yeah. This does come in from a loyal O'Keefe groupie as a Tim and Biloxi misses Colin's old podcast, which he has, let's face it, Jerry, he has reminded us many times how great his old podcast was. Am I right or am I right? I, it's, there's a sign. Well, when there's I was doing this, into the ballpark. in my podcast, my rankings. <laughs> Tim, the check's in the mail. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. The talent. Colin is the talent. Oh, there's no doubt about that. He's the, most, he's the MVP of this show. Uh, the more important question that Tim wants to know, are you team pizza or are you team burrito? Whew, depends on the day you ask me. Team pizza, uh, I would say, is the more likely. Like Team pizza, 10 days out of 10. And I love burritos, but I think that does speak to the importance of good pizza. Well, there's, and I know this is probably not nutritionally accurate, but I feel like when I eat a burrito, I feel like my waist is just growing with every bite. But if I pick up the right pizza, I can, I can take down uh, a whole pizza pie without feeling Every any guilt. single occasion you could ever think of. Now, burrito has its place. It could have its place in everyday dining if you didn't care about your waistline. It had its place in my belly this, this, <laughs> this afternoon. Have you ever had a good breakfast pizza, though? Breakfast burritos, I okay, feel like, are point. pretty, pretty, pretty excellent. Fair you know, point. You know who can make a breakfast pizza? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Shade of Poto. There's no doubt about it. We'll wrap things up. We'll go around the horn here, Jerry. Reminder that as this season approaches very quickly from now, single-game tickets are on sale. You can go to Mariners.com slash Edgar for all things Edgar, from Cooperstown travel packages to tickets to, of course, Edgar Martinez Hall of Fame weekend. Lastly, single-game tickets on sale for games in Japan, both the opening series and the exhibition games. Go to Mariners.com slash Japan if you will be making that trip. Jerry, this will be our last face-to-face in person before you make your travel safe journey to Peoria. We can't wait to get things going down in the Valley of the Sun, my friend. I'm looking forward to it. It's exciting. 